I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm Hoy, and with me, as always, is my lanky albino co-host, Jeff Code. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Great. This week, we are discussing Michael Moorcock's The Stealer of Souls. So, Jeff, tell us about The Stealer of Souls and the copy that you're reading. Sure. The copy that I have, uh, the book itself is published in 1963. The one that I have is the second Lancer printing from 1973, and the cover is falling off because the Lancer glue isn't so good. Um, but mine's got this Jeff Jones cover, which is pretty cool. You know, Jeff, uh, we've got Elric standing on a boat and he's wielding Stormbringer. Mm-hmm. Um, the Although it's white, not black on the cover there. Yeah, it's a white sword. And the the way in which he's holding it, it kind of looks like he's going to fall over backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of an awkward pose. Well, he's, he's, you know, sickly. He can't hold a sword up. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this giant sea serpent leaping out of the water. But, like, it really looks like the sea serpent's going to get him before the sword swings down yeah, on it. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, and we've got a bunch of bearded men who are rowing rapidly to, I guess, get away from the sea serpent. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So that's that's my copy. Uh, what are you reading, Hoy? I am reading the uh, Del Rey Ballantine uh, ebook of the, the 2008 trade paperback, which has uh, both the Steeler of Souls and the uh, conclusion to the Elric Saga, uh, Stormbringer. So it seems kind of odd to do it that way, but uh, the Del Rey series is in publication order as opposed to internal chronology. And that's a discussion we can have later in the episode. But, um, you know, he originally just started with just these relatively small body of stories and then started filling in, backfilling all the other sort of interstitial parts in Elric's history. So, um, but I'm excited. So here we are with one of the sort of giants of Appendix N and of, uh, you know, often cited in the D&D literature. Um, so this should be a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get into the library and discuss this further, uh, let's look at the Hygaxian word of the day. All right. Sibilant. Sibilant. And the word sibilant means making or characterized by a hissing sound. And it's used a few times in the novel, and uh, or the rather the collection of stories. And one of the times in which it's used, it says, uh, it's on page 14, swaying, his eyes staring unseeingly, his arms jerking out ahead of him and making unholy signs in the air, he began to speak in a sibilant monotone. Pretty Good. cool. Sneaky. Yeah, sneaky. Um, so, <laughs> sneaky uh, monotone. So as you mentioned, it is actually a series of uh, stories or novelettes. So mm-hmm. uh, let me list the stories. They were all originally published in Science Fantasy Magazine between June of 1961 and October of 1962. So at this point, Michael Moorcock would have been quite a young man, 22, 23 years old. And I think he might have even started working on these stories when he was in his teens. Uh, in any case, the first story is The Dreaming City. The second is While the Gods Laugh. The third uh, gives a title to the collection, The Stealer of Souls. And then it's Kings in Darkness. The last story was originally published as The Flamebringers, but it's often retitled as The Caravan of Forgotten Dreams in other collections. Yeah, and it's The Flamebringers in mine and The Caravan of Forgotten Dreams in yours. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
hit, hit me, Jeff. What's what's what jumped out at you? This is your first time reading Michael Moorcock, right? It's my first time reading Moorcock. It's my first time reading Elric. Um, I loved this so much. I really understand why people go ape over over Elric. I'm excited to check this out more. Uh, just like the vitality of the character, uh, it's it's so it's the the the, the stories are so dark and funny and uh, vivid, and it it feels like. A heavy metal album cover set to uh, set to a short story. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, it really just feels like it's, it's like a living heavy metal heavy metal album cover. Are you sure it's not an, e- an emo album cover? <laughs> um, no, I actually because I, I really feel like uh, I, I feel like I'm like stepping into an Iron Maiden album gotcha. cover like while I'm reading this stuff. I gotcha. don't know. It's just it's re- it's really fun, uh, and it feels like it's the voice of like a of like a young man. It's like it, it definitely has his kind of youthful energy. Right. There's no question this is a young man's writing. This is not... I don't think you could replicate the effect of the emotion in this if you were, you know, in your 40s or 50s. You would have a different, different kind of, you know, glance into the darkness than, than you have here. Yeah, it's uh, like you and I were chatting about this earlier, but how uh, when we were reading The Maker of Universes, you know, there you've got the story of this, like, old man, of this man who's aging and he's, like, trapped in his, like, horrible... in, in, in this really unhappy marriage... And his body is is aging and yeah. falling apart, right. and he can't. And he's really excited about the idea of going through this other world where he can become youthful and 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 right. energized and get a second and, chance and be everything that he could have been or thinks he should have been. Right. Absolutely. Right. So the the age of Philip Jose Farmer that mm-hmm. when he wrote that was also apparent. Yeah. <laughs> this is definitely a a young man raging at the sort of darkness and unfairness of the world. And, it, and if it can't be fair or good, he's just going to tear it all down. Yeah. That's, that's the vibe that we're getting out of this. Yeah, uh, which is like, like a bit of a Jack of Shadows thing going on too. Uh, but I feel like this, and this clearly predates Jack of Shadows. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that um, uh, we've talked about this. This is um, a subject of, uh, controversy is not the right word, but you know, people always say, oh, um, Elric, who is the protagonist of the story, is is basically the the sort of photographic negative of Conan the Barbarian, which right? I he's, love. He's a skinny, weak albino. You know, Conan hates magic, so of course Elric is a master magician. Mm-hmm. Um, you Conan's know. this incredibly powerful, virile warrior, mm-hmm. and um, Elric, without his sword, yeah. is frail and weak and right. sickly. He's basically, a drug addict. If you know, yeah. And, um, you know, Conan is from you know, the barbaric north and Elric is from a 10,000 year old decadent civilization, you know, that, you know, considers torture as an art form. Yeah. <laughs> and Conan through, uh, goes through many great adventures to finally end up as king of Aquilonia, where Elric is just born king and doesn't even want to be king. Right. And in fact, tries to tear it all down. Mm-hmm. You know, just... Yep. Yep. And Conan is this like ultimate womanizer who's going from woman to woman. And although... Elric does have a different woman in each of the first four stories. By the fifth story, he's like in a monogamous relationship with the woman from the fourth story, and he's like settled down, and he's done adventuring, and he just wants to have a simple, quiet life. Uh, Conan would never do anything of the sort. Right, right. Yeah, and so a lot of people say that this is like <laughs> Moorcock trying to negate, you know, swords and sorcery, but I, I think this is um, there's more to it than that. I, I, my take on it is because Moorcock... Um, was clearly a fan. I mean, he was writing, you, oh, know, yeah. you know, a Burroughs fanzine when he was only 15 or 16. And he was uh, working on AMRO, which was one of the very early sort of fan publications that was also bringing in a lot of, you know, famous writers. You know, this was how they would discuss stuff, you know, in lieu of the internet back in the late 50s and early 60s. And so my take on it is that 
this is Moorcock both trying to acknowledge and shake off the influence of Robert E. Howard in order to be able to create something of his own. Because if he would just try to replicate the what had been source and sorcery up to that point, he would never be able to you know find his own voice. And I think this is what he was attempting to do. Um, so to say that he was anti-swords and sorcery, I think no. is probably unfair or not accurate. You know? I don't think that's accurate at all. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's fantastic that you're able to supply us with some actual facts to back this up. But even without them, I just feel like reading the story, it's clear to me that he is a huge fan of this. And just because Elric is the anti-Conan doesn't, to me, in any way equate Michael Moorcock being anti-Robert E. Howard. Right. That's not, that's, uh, uh, what is it, uh, causation is not... Uh, uh, correlation is not causation. Exactly, thank right. you. So, yeah, yeah, correlation is not causation. Right. And, and it's this idea of, like, you know, when you're, when you're a teenager and you're rebelling against your parents, it's a very natural state that everybody goes through because it's our, it's, it's the time in our life where we're trying to stay out our own independence and create our own identity. So I feel like Michael Moorcock was reading the sword and sorcery stuff, loving it, and saying, how can I make this mine? And how can I change this and make this uniquely me? Yeah. I uh, was sort of looking into this literary theory, which uh, called the uh, anxiety of influence, which was first uh, put forward by uh, the poetry critic Harold Bloom. Uh, I'm not going to pull too much out of my... uh, hind end about that since I actually haven't read the book about it. But it really goes into that idea of people uh, being sort of weighed down by their influence and then either having to surpass it or essentially be destroyed by it. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's a very Freudian theory and there's other theories, uh, you know, literary theories to account for this kind of um, both uh, reaction and reinforcement of your influences. Um, But I think that may be apropos and I'll have to look into that further, you know, as we get further into the Elric series because essentially there's we're only going to read officially two books, but there's essentially six or seven books in the Elric series, although only uh, this one and Stormbringer were during the Appendix era officially. Um, so this is your first time coming to Michael Moorcock. Uh, I came to Michael Moorcock via, uh, like many D&D fans, the um, Deities and Demigods, because mm, there's a whole chapter on there. And um, and I had the, uh, again, the good fortune of having good library systems in my uh, area. And so I was able to find the DAW uh, publications, so that would have been around 1980, 81, with the amazing Michael Whalen covers. Um, but it wasn't until the late 2000s, no, or uh, late 90s, when Michael Moorcock's um, Eternal Champion series was republished by White Wolf Publishing of Vampire Fame, that they actually had the quote-unquote definitive texts. So there's a lot of debate as to what is um, accurate Elric. Uh, and he seems to not really care. He seems like, oh, yeah, let me change this a little bit. Let me change that. And he's always revisiting his fiction. Um, but the, this primal blast that you, you got, I think, is, is the way to experience it. Yeah. Um, I would also just like to clarify that actually these are not the only two Elric stories we're reading. Because um, after, after Stormbringer, we'll be reading The Singing Citadel, okay. uh, which right. was published in 67. Uh-huh. And then after that is The Vanishing Tower, which was published in 71. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly how many we're going through. I'd have to go back and really look at the list. Got it. Um, but we're definitely doing more than two Elric stories. Great, great, because I think there's going to be a lot of demand for that. Yes, and I'm really excited to work my way further into this. Um, it's just, it's such a rich, fun character. And the other characters in here as well, too, like uh, um, Moonglum is just this great character as well. You know, um, I, one of my complaints with Conan, I love Conan, but one of my complaints with Conan is that Robert E. Howard is always telling us how mirthful he is and how much he enjoys a good laugh. But, like, I feel like Conan never actually 
or almost never does anything really that funny. Right. But um, Elric and Moonglum, when they're together, you know, actually, I do feel like there's a lot of laughter that really does kind of leap off the page from Moonglum's perspective. And even with Elric, although he's not particularly prone to mirth or laughter, uh, he even he kind of gets a kick out of things every now and again in a way that, like, I don't think Conan ever does. Right. I think Moonglum fulfills that role. Um, court jester is not quite the right word, but to basically point out the folly of the overall uh, situations that they're in, that you know, that in particular the Elric and the you know the young kingdoms that they're venturing through, mm-hmm. you know, and the the relationship between Molnabone, which is this ancient decadent empire, and, and the you know the young kingdoms, you know, a, an interesting dynamic. So Elric is essentially the reverse of Conan again. To go, he's the most civilized man in the world you know, for certain values of civilization. Mm-hmm. And he's traveling through a world that's barely crawled out of the mud as far as he's concerned. Yeah. Um, so, again, that's the anti-Conan aspect. But what he calls civilization and what we would call civilization are maybe two different things. He's definitely an, an evil empire, mm-hmm. you know, Elric. You could almost um, draw a line, and this maybe is more appropriate for the gaming part of it. You could almost say the Monobonians in many ways are sort of one of the antecedents of the the drow as they are presented, you know, in the, you know, the original vault of the drow module, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard that before. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so uh, about the stories themselves, or anything that you really wanted to call out as leaping out on the page to you? (laughs) Well, the first thing I would mention is that on the very first page of the first story, The Dreaming City, we talk, uh, uh, Michael Moorcock talks about how these various kingdoms within this world that he's created are part of our own prehistory. And talks about how, like, this is before the time of, like, China and France and things like that. And it's interesting to me that although this is clearly an anti-Conan in a lot of ways, there are a lot of similarities. And one of them is that, like, in the Hyborian Age, um, uh, Robert E. Howard talks about how these various kingdoms are also in our own prehistory. And it's interesting that that's something Moorcock continued to follow because I personally find this stuff more compelling and more interesting when it takes place in a different dimension or a different version of our world than it being in our own prehistory. Um, maybe that's just an aesthetic thing for me. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's a, um, hmm. um, I think the reason he might have done that, A, is, again, he had the Robert E. Howard uh, precedent. And we also think about Middle Earth actually happens in our world, too. Um, you know, Tolkien's Middle Earth is actually our world. It's not an alternate universe. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Um, what we'll, I think that's more called out in uh, Return of the King than in The Hobbit itself. Okay. But, but uh, I think that this is, um, I think there's a term called secondary world, which basically means an alternate universe as opposed to our world. Um, I could be wrong of, as to the exact terminology. But I think the idea now is that back then they thought it was when they're writing fiction in the 20th century and, you know, up to the middle 20th century, that it was more plausible that it be set in our ultra-distant past. You know, maybe we lost this knowledge rather than some alternate dimension. Whereas now, with our sort of more sort of pure left-brain minds, we think, no, this definitely didn't exist in the past. There's no evidence of it. So we have a harder time believing it happening in our universe than it happening in an alternate universe. But I think it happening in our world also, quote-unquote, our world also is maybe useful in the sense of us saying, oh, you know, human nature hasn't changed that much. Human emotions are the same. So I think that that may also be a reason to sort of present it as being of our world, just unimaginably far in the past, or in the case of, you know, the Jack Vance stories, unimaginably far in our future. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that, I think, doesn't bother me too much. But I can see how it might sort of mess with people's suspension of disbelief, you know, mm-hmm. in this current era. And also reading this, it's very clear to me how influential 
the Elric stories are, not just on Dungeons and Dragons, but also on fiction in general. Because I'm reading this, and then I'm thinking of, you know, the uh, Song of Ice and Fire series. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we've got these ancient dragon kings who were these uh, uh, totally decadent rulers who... Uh, right. right, the Valyrians are clearly, you know, just, you know, poor, cu- poor distant kind of cousins of the Monobonians. Right? Yes, yes. Right. Um, the, um, the Targaryens, you mean? Tar- the Targaryen family of, of Valyria. Oh, yeah. of Valyria. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. so um, there's, there's clearly, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to me that George R. R. Martin is a big fan of Stealer of Souls. Mm-hmm. Um, or at the very least, I mean, also you've got the same stuff going on in the Wilderlands later, which I, I guess we can talk about more in the gaming stuff. But like, you know, in the Judges Guild campaign setting, the Wilderlands, there's also this uh, this ancient the, the, in, in the far distant past, the world was ru- was was ruled by these like sorcerer kings who were um, the, the the great dragon the, the great dragon kings. I'm forgetting the name of the empire right now, though. Yeah, Do you remember what they're no, called? Arishalon. They're the Arishalon dragon okay. kings. Um, so yeah, that 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 uh, and, and unless Morcock is taking that from somewhere else, I don't think he is. I think it's pretty clear that that idea of these decadent dragon sorcerers who once ruled the great lands but are no longer doing that uh, is is has become a little bit of a trope. Right. I, I like that fallen world trope. I like that idea that we're, you know, things were better in the past, and mm-hmm. we're we're just like you know sort of. Rats crawling through the ruins, so to speak, you know. Yeah, and even though right now, in this story, it takes place during the time in which the uh, Meldabonians are uh, still in rule, it's also clear that they that that their civilization has crumbled quite a bit, because there's this whole section too where. Uh, he talks about uh, how Elric talks about how he doesn't have the reserves of power that the sorcerer emperors of the past had. That like he can conjure these spells and do these great things, but the things that he can do now are mere shadows of what the uh, Meldabonian sh- uh, sorcerer emperors of the past could do. Right, they've just turned inwards. They're you know constantly sort of drugged up on opiates and dreaming and, and you know dreaming of past glory. Yeah, and that's what's allowed the young kingdoms to arise, sort of pick around the edges of their power. Yeah, um, I like that trope. I definitely, um, I think it's very rich because it lets you sort of portray that clash of you know older values and new values, older civilizations, and you know young more vital kingdoms. And I think that leaves a lot of room for both in fiction and gaming. Sort of a lot of white space to work with, right? Mm-hmm. If you're just all in a very civilized, world-spanning empire, then you really don't have much to work with. I think it's also telling that in um, Chinese literature, a lot of epic fiction of you know of the Western tradition, it's usually things are happening at sort of sort of the the inter the intersection of civilizations or the old and the new, right? Mm. And, and that's where conflict comes from, right? So if yeah. it was just all, you know, everything was golden, then we would be doing, you know, uh, Jane Austen stories with science, science, with science fantasy trappings. Yeah, may you live in interesting times. Right. <laughs> and in, the, in taking it back to George R. R. Martin again, it's like also in The Song of Ice and Fire, you know, this is a wor- the world in which they live in is a world in which magic has been so far in decline that in the early books, a lot of people don't even don't even believe in it anymore. Uh, but in their stories, like in the past, like magic was once very much alive and very much fueling all of this stuff. As the stories go by, clearly, like magic becomes more of a thing and dragons right, are clearly real. But definitely, this idea of like living living in a place where. It was once great and powerful, and I guess that's actually kind of similar with like Hyro's journey or these sto- or or like Dying Earth, 
right? Your sort of cycles and and mm-hmm. um, cycles or waves. And again, I think it's a a great it's a great way to sort of um, you know you throw a few phrases in there to just give a little extra flavor to let people realize that it's the scenery is going on. There's more than just what's in front of them, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's something else going on. It just gives you a little bit more depth. Uh, to the world that you're moving through, I think. Yeah. Well, again, in fiction and later on in gaming, if you can just throw a phrase in here or there, mm-hmm. I think it really it really helps. And whether it's great magics or great technologies, it's interesting to have an environment where you are surrounded by these great and powerful artifacts that, that the people today don't quite understand anymore. You know, and that's why worlds like the Forgotten Realms are a lot less compelling to me, uh, because those are those are worlds in which like the 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 peak of the high magic era is right at this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, like everything is super powerful, high powered magic. You're you're living in a world where twentieth level wizards occupy every corner of the earth, and for me, like that doesn't quite grab me the same way. Yeah, and I think that kind of high fantasy it's a problem because you can only keep on upping the stakes, mm-hmm. right? And so the the it's it's more like a video game. You it's like, you know, the the boss the boss enemy has to get better, better, better. Whereas yeah. in these stories you see Elric is constantly losing things. He's losing his companions, he's losing access to the resources of Melnabone, he's losing you know the herbs that he needs to keep himself strong. So all the he then he's he keeps on getting drawn back to having to use Stormbringer, which is you know essentially vampiric or uh, but a symb- symbiotic with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, there's definitely this idea of addiction that's played through in here, which is very powerful. And oh yeah, because Storm- Stormbringer is very clearly the heroine, yeah. and the drugs that he uses to give himself uh, strength when he puts when he gets rid of Stormbringer is clearly his methadone, right? Because uh, it's not, it's not. He's not feeling good when he plays the drugs. It just no. gets him back to like some sort of normal baseline. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But he's absolutely just as as reliant on those to give right. him some kind of feeling of right. control. The only thing it doesn't do for that methadone does is he doesn't have to go to Dunkin' Donuts and you know put like thirty cups of sugar in his coffee. <laughs> <laughs> sure, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's playing with that. It's playing with the fact that. Even at any moment when he discovers happiness, it's really just an interlude in a sort of downward spiral mm-hmm. that the world is going through. It's not just him. It's the whole world is, is sort of spinning towards something. Later on, we'll find out that Elric is one of many aspects of what's the so-called eternal champion, but that has not been brought up in this book yet. I think this is before it sort of coalesced in Michael Moorcock's mind. But later on, we'll find out that he's an aspect of this sort of eternal character who is there, sort of the balance between chaos and law. Um, yeah, like on a meta level right now, I'm aware that that is true. Yeah. But from what I have read, there's been no indication Right, of that. not directly in this text yet. But yeah, er- Elric is certainly not villainous, but he is not a good person to be around. Only bad things happen to you if you're around him for any length of time, it seems to me. You know? Yeah, and there's this great scene in the first story where he's uh, going through uh, where he's going through Imrir, the dreaming city. Is that how you say it? Im- yeah. Uh, anyways, he's going through his hometown. And uh, it's, at some point, he's walking through the castle, and he can hear, like, the shrieks of pain of somebody being tortured. And he kind of chuckles to himself and says something about how, you know, uh, Milnabonians are, are so far above the human fray that they find different things entertaining than, than normal people do. So clearly, like, here's somebody who, like, gets off on the sounds of human torture. Yet in a later story, there's a moment where he has um, helped sack a city— um, but he's doing it because, like, he's he's kind of going undercover. 
and he's he like goes into this uh, this house on his own, and then these raiders come in with a woman, and they're gonna rape her, and um, and he ends up like murdering the men to like not have this woman get raped. So like he 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 does help people, and he is a savior in some ways, but he's also a very kind of sick, twist, and dark dark person who has a very different sense of morality than we do. Mm-hmm. And it's almost considering his emperor, it's almost anarch anarchic right mm-hmm. his, his sense of like uh what is right and wrong and, and how it should be applied is there a alter, you know he's a, he's essentially a monobone is essentially aligned with chaos um which is not necessarily evil but it's definitely chaotic it's not again not something that a normal human being will want to be associated for any length of time um i don't know that i don't know that i would agree with that that yeah. they're aligned with chaos um, the only reason I would say, and, and granted, you know more than I do because you've read further than I have. Yeah. I'm basing that only on um, one of the passages that I was going to reserve until we got to the gaming portion, but I think it's worth reading now. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. So on page 65, uh, they're talking about law and chaos. And at one point, Elric says, It is believed by many sorcerers and philosophers that two forces govern the universe, fighting an eternal battle, Elric replied. These two forces are termed law and chaos. These are values supposedly set above the qualities men call good and evil. The upholders of chaos state that in a world as they rule, all things are possible. Opponents of chaos, those who ally themselves with the forces of law, say that without law, nothing material is possible. I, like most sorcerers, stand apart, believing that a balance between the two is the proper state of things. So Elric is saying that he is neither aligned with law nor chaos because he believes in the proper balance of things. But he also says, I like all sorcerers. And it's my impression that the Melnemonians are all sorcerers as well. But perhaps that's not the case. So I don't know. Based on that, I would say that I would not think they were generally chaotically aligned. Um, I think you're you're correct in reading it from the text as that. Um, my feeling, again, I think is that uh, this has not completely coalesced in uh, Michael Moorcock's mind, and he's, this cosmology would become great, more and more well-developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the essential idea was that even though the Eternal Champion's role was to basically balance law and chaos, it could be at any moment that, that the actual person was brought up to favor law or chaos because the system is so bar- uh, far out of whack in the other direction. Oh, interesting. So in a time where where, where law is especially powerful, right. the eternal champion is going to be a force of chaos. Right. Oh, right. interesting. Okay. And uh, just to bring it into the gaming hut for a little bit, or the the game universe. So it's interesting. And we don't need a hard we don't right. need a hard right, division right. between the two. But um, when we talk about DCC, which is uh, generally the system we play the most these days. Here, the passage you just read says that chaos and law are above human concerns. Yes. Whereas in uh, DCC, they are sort of cosmic issues, but they are they do reflect your behavior. Whereas "quote unquote" neutrality is what's above human concerns, because Cthulhu, for example, is neutral; it's not chaotic because he's above he, he it is above human concerns. Well, and whether or not Dungeon yeah. Crawl Classics alignment is based on human. Morality is also a highly con- contentious topic too, right. yeah. because although the text very clearly states that um, that although it's above good and evil, 
it does affect kind of the, your, the basic tenets. Like if you are a lawful person, you tend to follow the laws. And right. if you're a chaotic person, you don't. Yeah, it tends However, to be more selfish, if not evil. And, absolutely. Yeah. But there are some people who are very involved in that world who say that that's utter garbage. Like, for example, I was chatting with Doug Kovacs. And Doug Kovacs, who does the art for most of this stuff, mm-hmm. um, he very strongly believes that uh, that, that is not true. <laughs> that whoever wrote that section of the book is is incorrect. Uh-oh. And that, uh, that... So he's going to arm wrestle the Dark Master? <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know who necessarily wrote that section. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he he didn't specifically say any names, right. um, but that um, but that yeah, but that the alignment system in DCC very much is just cosmic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is one thing that's interesting about alignment in general in games that do have it is this idea of how much of it is this kind of unknowable cosmic force where I could be somebody who lives my life following the laws, but I'm actually, without realizing it, an agent of chaos. Right. Or I'm somebody who is out there breaking the laws, but I'm uh, breaking the laws of man, but I'm ultimately allied with the forces of law in this world. Right. Um, I think that that's why just the three alignment system is much more effective, right? Because... Once you got to AD, or the two, or the two alignment. Well, I mean, assuming yes, assuming there's no neutrality, it's just that axis. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the nine alignment system in D and D sort of became behavioral, even if it was not in- necessarily intended that way. It's, sure. it's very behavioral, and I think it became more of a straight jacket in some regards. And I'm not sure exactly um, why Gary Gygax decided he had to slice it so thin. And of course, it's caused you know no end of arguments ever since. Like, oh, my character would never do that. He's uh, you know, or your character could never do that because uh, he's a paladin. He's you know, he's lawful good. He can't go you know just kill goblin kids, right? Yeah. You know, once they've surrendered. Uh, and what's interesting is I don't know if you're aware of this, but not all of the editions of D and D have a nine point alignment system. Fourth edition had a five point. All right, so good, evil, chaos. A uh, fourth edition has lawful good, uh-huh. lawful evil, chaotic good, chaotic evil, and neutral. Neutral. Hmm. Okay. No chaotic neutral. <laughs> That's even weirder. I think like I think nine, nine or three is fine. But, <laughs> but five, you're five, not down five. With. I'm not down with five. Yeah. <laughs> you, you need you need to, you feel like you need to have a chaotic neutral, a lawful neutral, a neutral good, and a neutral evil to kind of balance out hmm. the nine point system. Yeah. Oh, well, again, if you're going nine, I, I like the Lamentations of the Flame Princess one, which is pretty essentially cosmic, and they say there that, um, and we talked about sort of the opposite thing because basically in Three Hearts and Three Alliance said oh, almost all humans are lawful. Yes. Uh, in Lamentations of the Flame Princess it says basically everybody who's ever lived in the real world is neutral no matter how good or evil yeah. they are. And that, uh, it again, it is cosmic. So all magic users and elves are chaotic. That's where they get the ma- magic is sort of this uncontrolled force, right? Mm-hmm. Undefined force. And that clerics are lawful they get their power from somewhere it's some higher authority yeah. although it's not necessarily actually divine or good mm-hmm. um but that's that's just how that game is set up so that's a really interesting take on it um and maybe a little bit closer to what's going on here in the the Moorcock books um i think the dcc for a couple of reasons is left somewhat open-ended and that's why we see dave you know doug kovacs saying you know what's in the book as to as to what is actually correct <laughs> are two different sure, things. Sure, sure. And speaking of Dungeon Crawl Classics, I am I am by no means an insider. So I'm about, I'm about to make a prediction, but I don't actually, I'm not doing this based on anything, any knowledge I have. Like, yes, I am on another podcast that's about Dungeon Crawl Classics. But that said, I am not in any way uh, in any kind of an information pathway that would give me kind of insider information. But um, I do know that Goodman Games is in the process of uh, working out another 
license. This is something they've been very clear about. Uh, they've they've already kickstarted successfully kickstarted their Lankmar box set. Right. Um, they've had some uh, problems with their Dying Earth campaign setting because Joe Bittman, who originally had signed up to write that, is no longer on the project. So that project is a little less clear where it stands. Mm-hmm. But they have announced that they are going to announce a third uh, th- a third license. And my prediction is that it's the Elric Stormbringer series. Okay. And the reason for that is I feel like um, it, it, is, it, it follows the path of them doing uh, campaign settings that have already been released for role-playing games in the past. And also, it's just such a perfect fit for Dungeon Crawl Classics. Yeah, I definitely see that because the magic is so wild and uncontrolled. Yeah, and, and, and patrons. Yeah, patrons. You know, there. like here, like Elric is constantly like calling, calling to Ariok and asking him like for his yeah, guidance. Blood, blood and souls. Right? Yeah, exactly. And he's 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 more than happy to like promise him like the souls of of, of the dead that he will slay with Stormbringer. Right. Uh, and there's and, an interaction with the patrons when they appear. So and and you know that there's going to be a price to pay when it. Absolutely. Yeah. And in Dungeon Crawl Classics, there's this whole idea of like how how no monster is just uh, you don't have you don't have just an orc or just a goblin. And constantly in this, like he encounters this like crazy mist giant that they call a mist giant, right. but really it's this like amorphous, kind of like terrifying, kind of almost Lovecraftian being. Mm-hmm. You got these crazy dog birds. Oh, those are great. Those are yeah. Great and even like the dragon, when when, when they encounter the dragons. The dragons in Michael Moorcock's Steeler of Souls are not kind of our, you know, codified post-1980s idea of what a dragon looks like. They're kind of these, like, long serpentine winged creatures. I think the closest thing they might resemble in D&D as written would be the black dragons. Cause they, more, they spit acid, right? Venom rather than fire, right? Yeah. They, uh, it's this kind of like, well, but it's a highly condensed sort of venom flammable. that as soon as they spit it out, it then erupts into flames. Right. So it's kind of a cross between the black and the red. Right. And they sleep. Here's another case of the dragon sleep, right? Because once they go out for action and, and, you know, for war, then they have to sleep for months, if not years, before they can be awoken again, right? Yeah, or maybe it's even like decades or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very long time that they're just kind of winded and out of commission. Right. Uh, So even so, like your your traditional dragon is something that's completely different. Mm -hmm. And another thing is this idea of like there is no just plus one sword. Like, oh, you find a plus one sword. No. Like if you're going to encounter encounter a magical item, you're going to encounter magical an item like Stormbringer. Right. And Stormbringer is like an intelligent sword that has wants and desires. And this sword wants to consume souls. Right. And it will do it at, uh, it, will, it, will, it, will, it, will, it will even take over your own willpower and cause you to slay people who you didn't intend to slay, uh, such as the love of his life, Cimmeril, uh, when he's in the heat of battle. Right. Uh, no, I think, yeah, you're right. This is the absolute... You know, perfect property for DCC. Although I'm kind of holding out for a, a Thongor the Barbarian Glyn Carter license. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the Less Darkness Fall right, uh, <laughs> box set. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or, or the Blue Star box uh, set. Blue Star box set. That yeah, would be perfect. Yeah, okay. Right. That, uh, right, right. That's let's a, kickstart that right away. That's, that's a, you know, game line in itself that can run forever. Joe Goodman, if you're if you're listening to this, right. like Hoy and I would love to write your Blue Star box right, set. Right. Right. Like I say, it's a game line that run forever but actually i mean a game line that feels like it runs forever <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> you're only playing a two-hour session but it feels like it's been a lifetime there you go <laughs> <laughs> 
So. Oh man! And you know, this is not a Dungeon Crawl Classics podcast. We talk about um, about many role playing games on here, but I think specifically the reason why Dungeon Crawl Classics is coming up today, other than it's just the game that Hoy and I play the most often and have a very intense love for. I also just, I mean, it really does line up so nicely with this. But taking it back to the Appendix N, because the Appendix N is a collection of the stories that Gary Gygax said inspired the creation of the advanced of the original iteration of Dungeons & Dragons, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and is just kind of inspirational reading in general. So, like, Hoy, what are some stuff that you think we could take from, that, that, that Gary may have taken from this in the creation of D&D? Um, well, certainly, uh, as we just mentioned, alignment, because it's much more yes. clear in here what alignment is, or maybe not in this specific book, but in general from the Elric series, than it is in Three Hearts and Three Lines. Um, so I think alignment for sure. Um, uh, Stormbringer is not just a magic sword; it would be almost what you would classify as an artifact mm-hmm. in, Dunge- in Dungeon Master's Guide. But certainly, you know, certainly a plus five sword, if nothing else. And there's uh, intelligence swords right. in the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Swords. Some, I mean, uh, Elric is not specifically a cleric, but now we actually get to see the idea of sort of divine intervention, mm-hmm. right? Actually, can call on these deities, and they actually have a presence. In the physical world, it's not just like omens and oh, all interesting, right? Because yeah. you know we had that one percent chance of calling, you know, calling on divine aid or whatever it was, in you know the various iterations of early D and D. Oh yeah, so, okay, interesting. Um, and you know whether or not he transferred any specific character uh, creatures to D and to D and D. Certainly that flavor of original creatures. I mean, there's dragons, but the dragons are unique. They're not just like uh, the standard medieval trope of a fire-breathing dragon, and it's not smog. They're not smog. These are these are quasi-intelligent beasts. They're not personalities the way that smog is, or, yeah. you know, some of the other... You know, the various creatures in this world uh, seem in the sense that they're Gygaxian, in the sense that they belong to this world. They're mm-hmm. not, oh, just here's a hippogriff, here's a, you know, here's a centaur. You know, those... Uh, those you know, hawk dogs or whatever they were called, you know, seem to belong there. The, <laughs> hawk dogs. Um, mm, the, hawk dogs. Right, hawk dogs. <laughs> you know, little corn batter on it. The uh, mist giants. Um, and actually, uh, what is interesting is, and this is what brings it back more towards swords and sorcery than, say, epic fantasy, even though that's the term that Moorcock liked to use, was that the worst adversaries that Elric has are not impersonal forces, even if it's, Chaos, like the Chaos Gods, because they have personalities. Ariok has a personality. Yes. Uh, most of the other people he's dealing with, uh, Feleb Karna, the Wizard of Pantang, has a personality. All the people that he's dealing with are, um, you know, have their wants and desires. And, um, you know, they often come into, you know, into uh, conflict with Elrics. And, and, and another thing I've seen in this world is that to have any desire is ultimately futile and damaging. Like uh, the... the wingless woman in the first story right she's going she wants to get her wings because she feels like she's a she's a beautiful woman but she's from a race of people with wings that she feels like she's a a mutant a horrible disgusting mutant because she doesn't have any wings so she goes on this quest she's not in the first story she's in the second story story, Mm -hmm. right but so you know and elric of course wanted to reclaim cimmerill and you know reclaim uh mulnabone from his cousin who he had left as a regent that ultimately goes horribly wrong yeah so anything that you want too much will go horribly wrong in this world oh yeah oh especially when he's going after the 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 dead god's book yeah you know he goes on this giant journey with shirilla to find this book because she'll uh, she wants to find this book because it will allow her to restore her 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 wings 
he wants to find this book because he really wants to understand why he's alive and what all of this means. And is there some greater intelligent force that's behind the forces of law and chaos? So they go on this great adventure together, and that's where they meet Moonglum, and Moonglum comes along with them. And then by the very end of it, they get to the book. And as soon as he opens it up, uh, the book has been sitting there for so many thousands of years being untouched. As soon as he opens up the book, it just falls apart and just turns into dust in front of him. Not unlike your Lancer paperback. <laughs> Not unlike my <laughs> Lancer paperback. Except, unfortunately, when my cover fell off, uh, uh, beautiful red jewels didn't then clink onto the ground. Because no. Moonglum was very happy to pick up those jewels that had fallen out of the cover from uh, when, it, when, it, when it fell apart. Right. He, he's in... You know, the most sort of pragmatic character, and he just realizes <laughs> this is all a grand jest. Yes. You know, Elric maybe intellectually realizes that, but emotionally he just can't get down with that, and that's his yeah. problem, you know. Now, um, another gameable thing, uh, or another thing that I think Gary took from here, is elementals. Sure. You know, you've got your summon elemental spell, and we see fire elementals, we see wind elementals. They're not called air elementals in the story, they're called mm -hmm. wind elementals. Um, and we also see Earth Elementals, which actually I don't think they were called Earth Elementals. I think they're called Earth Lords in the Earth story. Earth Lords, yeah. But no, even so, like yeah, so. We, we clearly, and they talk about how Elric is a nature magician. Like he's well-versed in nature wizardry is what they say. Um, <clears throat> and so here we have another specialist wizard. Um, and apparently nature wizardry in this world means that you are someone who can summon elementals. Now, one thing I want to talk about with summoning, summoning elementals, though, is in my history, as both a player and a dungeon master, people use summon elemental to attack things with. Mm -hmm. You summon a fire elemental to beat up things with fire. Right. You summon an earth elemental to beat up things with, with, earth, with stone earth. and rock. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. But like, what was cool is that um, when Elric was summoning, he didn't he didn't summon the fire elemental. That was a pyromancer right. who he was up right. against. But when he summoned the um, air elemental. Because uh, at one point, they, I think they referred to him as an aeromancer. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in addition to being a uh, well-versed in nature wizardry, he's also an aeromancer. But he summons air elementals to, um, to guide his ship. Right. And he summons earth elementals to kind of uh, break up the earth and swallow an army. So it's, it's, it's fun to see somebody using elementals because their element does something helpful to them at that moment in the story. And that's something that I'm going to walk away with wanting to use more in my games and that I would like to see other people think more about because it's not just a summon monster spell. Right. You definitely need to use it a little bit more creatively uh, uh, and a lot of spellcraft. And I think that's what's actually kind of cool about, again, DCC because in Dungeons & Dragons, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, the spell results are very codified, mm -hmm. most spell results. Now, you could, the, the, the summon uh, spell, summon elemental, bind elemental, are a little bit more open-ended, but since I think all the other spells are so well codified, it maybe puts you in that mindset of, here's all I can do with that spell, even mm -hmm. though it's actually a little bit more open-ended than people think. Whereas the DCC spells are so sort of swingy and all over the place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, usually there's a little line for interpretation on every, you know, result. So it gives you a lot more leeway, I think, in that regard. And since DCC spells are not sort of fire and forget the way that uh, traditional Dungeon Dragon spells are, you can sort of try, you know, and then try again for a better result, mm -hmm. you hope. Or you could get in that death spiral of, you know, trying to spend your luck points or, or self-harming your character to, you know, to try to just uh, not get the worst possible result. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
So I think that that plays into that sort of dark world, as you say, that fit between DCC and a potential, you know, Elric license if that were to happen. Yeah. And I don't know if Gary took this from Stealer of Soul or this is something he just naturally intuited, but there's also a discussion of spell range at one point in, uh, in the story as well, where Elric is trying to produce a magical effect but he can't quite affect everybody who he's trying to help here because some of them are just too far away. Mm -hmm. So it is interesting to see spell range kind of active in the story. Um, also, this is another another story like um, like last episode where we were discussing the face in the frost. We have another another sorcerer here who, when he casts magic, he gets exhausted and he's just out of energy and can't cast anymore. And again, that's that's not Dungeons and Dragons. That's not Dungeon Crawl Classics. Um, and that, and what's interesting is that seems to be a far more common trope in the appendix. And so it's interesting that we don't see more of that in our fantasy role playing. Right. Certainly, and not in this uh, branch of RPGs. We had talked about how maybe the sort of um, RuneQuest branch, mm -hmm. Call of Cthulhu branch, GURPS branch, where they use spell points yeah. would more, more model that. Although I suppose... Uh, but again, even spell points, when you're out of that, you're not exhausted. Uh, except in GURPS, because it's fatigue points, which okay. is what you're using. That's right. But you could use... Um, again, that was, you know, super granular. But um, I suppose you could use the spell burn effects to sort of emulate that, though. Mm -hmm. Say, instead of that, they're cutting their finger or something like that, you just got completely exhausted. You just feel all the life draining out of you, you yeah. know, in order to get that spell effect. So... Um, Part of that, I think, is to make it descriptive on the part of both the player and the game master. And so you can think of that as, you know, the common trope in, in DCC says, oh, you know, I, I slash my hand and, you know, lose some blood or, or, you know, you know, twist my ankle. And that's how I, you know, spell burn my physical attributes in order to gain points. But um, again, we could just say that literally just feel the life draining out of you. Yeah. You, feel, you know, you age a year or two or something like that. And in fact, if my prediction that the next uh, campaign setting that, Goodman Games is going to announce is the Stormbringer setting, and the person who's going to eventually write that box set is listening. I think you could even do something where, if you wanted to emulate that in with the Dungeon Crawl Classics rules, uh, emulate that kind of spell casting, is you could say that every time you cast a spell, you have to spell burn a number of points equal to the spell level. But but it's not like the normal spell burn in that you know you only get back one point per day. It's the kind of thing like it's it's like um, it's like um, disapproval from your god. Uh -huh. The next day it's just all back. Right. Um, I think that would be really interesting because you're actually watching a character take down their physical stats as they're using more and more magic throughout the day. Um, I think that would emulate that nicely and kind of give you this idea of this like you know this 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 sorcerer who like really is like depleting and getting weaker and more frail as the day as the deal as the day goes on, and in addition to like. You know, there being consequences to magic, like bad things can happen. There are also very reliable consequences that, like, my body gets drained when I cast magic. Right. I think, again, traditional DC, uh, sorry, D&D &D, um, treats spells more like, uh, you know, the the version of the so-called Vancian magic system treats spells more like a, a limited supply of ammunition. There's mm -hmm. no comp, uh, consequence for casting spells other than, like, you literally run out of bullets, so you can't do anything more, mm -hmm. where... Uh, I like this idea, as you say, in DCC and some other games, that, that magic is not to be trifled with. There is a price to pay, even oh, yeah. for the most trivial thing that you might do. And things can go always go horribly wrong. Um, you know, so there's a high upside, but also potentially, you know, very uh, high, uh, low downside, so to speak. So I think that is closer, as you say, to the fiction in a lot of what we've read so far. 
then, oh, you know, cast spell has gone for the day. Yeah. And there were other spells as well that I feel like we can clearly see came out of here. You know, the whole idea of like the demon summoning spell. And in addition to some, I mean, because this isn't the only place that exists, but it was very, it was very obvious here. And also the the guy who's casting the demon summoning spell, he's got his uh, pentacle drawn around him and he's staying within the pentacle to stay safe from the Mm -hmm. demons that he has summoned, uh, which if I recall correctly, is also a part of the AD&D demon summoning spell, right? If you stay within your kind of... your, I think so. I haven't I haven't played it for a long time, but I think a lot of times I remember playing it because the summoning spells supposedly took a long time. It was very yeah. rare that you would play a game where someone actually had time to summon a creature of any sort. That's true. Know? It's not really something you did like in, it, like in combat in the moment. You right. needed to kind of prepare for that. Right. And I wonder if that's maybe a feature for, you know more campaign-oriented play mm-hmm. and say, oh, I've done the spell already. Um, maybe that's sort of the sort of the mini-game, meta-game that you do, like, just before a session starts, says, oh, this is what my magician has been working on. He's been, you know, researching these spells, and he's summoned up this demon to get this knowledge, and this is how he got to this place where the adventure starts, you know, yeah. you know written on the back of this demon um, or some such thing like that. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, bringing more of the weird, the dark, the dangerous into the game... Uh, our games is something that um, we can see if we go back to the fiction. It's not this kind of flavor is not so much about system mastery, knowing all the ins and outs of the mechanics of the system. It's about trying to capture the flavor. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if we we go for that mode, then this fiction is where we can get that, as opposed to I think some of the more sort of um, delineated systems like Pathfinder and such, which I think are a little bit more similar to sort of you know video game level ups and, and mods and that kind of thing like that. Uh, you know, feel free to disagree. I, I think that there's still a lot of um, flexibility built into those systems. It's just um, you will tend to see a lot of sort of options that you want to turn on and off, and this is more about interpretation. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that, you know, you can run any kind of game in any kind of system, but some systems are better built for that than others. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you wanted to do a Stealer of Souls-style game, I do think Pathfinder is a harder system to do that in than Dungeon Crawl Classics would be. Sure. Um, but if you wanted to do maybe kind of a um, like a Dragonlance novel style kind of game, I think Pathfinder would be easier for that than Dungeon Crawl Classics would be. You know, so it, it depends on the kind of fantasy that you're trying to emulate. You know, and one of the things that I think is cool about, like, you know, you're talking about keeping it weird. And, you know, th- there's this moment where Elric's talking about how he has knowledge locked in his skull, which would turn lesser men into babbling idiots. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there are these moments where, where um, he... He like he like has access to these names and these like forbidden words that he kind of has in his head, and there are moments where he can kind of pull them out. And when he says these like when he says like the word that he has like in his head, like those moments like his brain starts to kind of like, like it, it's hard for him to kind of stay sane and stay himself. And like there's actual physical pain and exhaustion that comes out of him as he states this word. And oftentimes, like it is a it is a name of like a of like a foul entity that will like send some demon back to to where it came from, or it will allow for him to to get through um, some kind of forbidden like like there's one great moment where he's leading his his soldiers ahead of him, and they encounter this big black door, and the soldiers run up and they hit at it with their axe, mm-hmm. and the moment they all hit at it with the axe, they all just boof like disappear. Which would be a really evil uh, uh, trap to put in your own like adventure module right. if you want to do that to your NPCs. But well, that's uh, why once, we have henchmen. <laughs> that's followers. why you have henchmen. Yes. <laughs> um, 
Uh, but then Elric like pulls out one of those words and is able to get through. Right. Again, I think sometimes we, especially when we're playing sort of more limited time slots or, or you know, we just haven't developed that sort of GM's vocabulary yet. We just sort of concentrate on the mechanical effects rather than just layering on that extra flavor. You know, there's a fine balance to be struck there because it's not about you sort of just narrating a story to your players. That's not that's not the you know it's in, it's an interaction. So you want to sort of you know even that out, balance that out. But I think get yourself a few stock phrases. Mm-hmm. That descriptive phrases, you know, to describe magic or certain, you know, blows in combat. So someone rolls, you know, you know, a maximum result on their hit, you know, to damage roll. Don't just say, oh, the, you, you deal out eight points of damage. Oh, you know, you crease his skull and blood runs down his eyes and half his scalp is hanging off. You know, uh-huh. that's something like that. So if you can just give yourself a few stock phrases, um, I think that. You know, and then of course you can develop more. But if you can have a few, then because it, it's actually in the literature. If you look at the epic fiction, you always said you know the, um, you know the mighty feud so and so or the the spear that could penetrate three men or something like that. So if you give yourself a few of those, it's kind of a, a bardic oral tradition. And yes. that's what you are as a game master, right? You're kind of a bard, right? Yeah, you're a storyteller. Right, you're a storyteller. That's what uh, they call the, the GMs in White Wolf games. Right, in White Wolf games. Like again, like I said, it's not about you just narrating it to the players. It's like the players have handed you the ingredients and you hand that hand them back a dish. Yes. Right. And so there's that interplay. And then they say, oh, I don't like that dish. And say, okay, well, you're eating that one anyway. But next <laughs> Here's I spent course. all day working on that dish. <laughs> Here's the next course. Um, but, but if you give yourself a few of those things like that, I think um, rather than just concentrating on the purely mechanical aspects of the game, I think it, it will bring a lot to the table. Yeah, that, yeah. I think that's great. And I think that's a great, uh, great thing to end on. Yeah. Um, I would also like to say that uh, there's a really great quote on page 75 that says, there is no truth but that of the eternal struggle. Uh, so that's another thing worth, uh, worth possibly wrapping up with. Okay. Um, also, um, I, I hope that I don't feel this uh, anytime soon, but I'm certain by the time that uh, Hoy and I finish up this project... When or we're 63. When we're 63, we will be saying something very similar to what Elric says on the very last page of the book. And he says... I am tired of swords and sorceries, Zerozinia. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Hopefully we don't get there anytime soon, right. but <laughs> at this rate. Yep, yep. Okay, so uh, coming up next uh, will be uh, Gardner Fox's, Gardner F. Fox's Kothar Barbarian Swordsman, and the following that will be Sterling E. Lanier's High Rose Journey. Yes. And uh, uh, Hoy, do we have any new iTunes reviews? We do. We do have one this week. It's... Uh, from Staler on the Starless Sea, <laughs> nice. the header is one of the smartest podcasts running. Intelligent, thoughtful discussion on Appendix N. Love it. Well, thank you, Sailor. Yes. Okay. Hello, Sailor. Um, <laughs> so please, uh, do leave us more reviews on iTunes and the various other podcatchers of choice. It really does help people find us. We are also always looking for feedback. So, Jeff, why don't you tell us how they can get rich in touch with us? Yeah. If you have anything you'd like to share with us, you can send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. You can also follow us or tweet us on Twitter at appendix underscore n. Uh, If you would like to meet us in person and discuss the books that we're talking about in real life, you can go to meetup.com slash DCCNYC. That's where we have our in-person meetup groups. And you can always go to our website at appendixnbookclub.com and read the uh, really thoughtful and informative uh, show notes that Hoy puts together for each episode. And... um, and read up on the previous episodes. Okay. So, um, anything else, Jeff? I think that's it. Okay. See you in the stacks. Read on. Read on.